Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we are so grateful that while we cannot fathom the sight as we just sang, that our sins long ago miraculously were nailed to the cross to leave us innocent and our accuser ashamed. And we don't know what that sight was like. But we are eternally grateful that it took place. And so, Lord, this morning as we turn to your word, we pray that you would help us to have the strength and the wisdom and the insight to see more clearly this great salvation that you've given and made possible. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm guessing a lot or most of you are familiar with the the old Dickens phrase that what's in a name, the question, right? What's in a name? But maybe what we need to ask And if you spend a lot of time with guys who have spent a lot of time together, you start wondering, well, what's in a nickname? Because you you ladies, if you give a nickname, it's like sweetie or like it's something really uplifting. When guys give a nickname, it's like mad dog, skunk, beanie. Like it's these weird, like it's... Usually, like, you hear the nickname that a guy has given another guy, and you're like, I don't know that I can call you that without being punched in the face. But, but it it's becomes this expressive thing, and it usually characterizes probably, like, the least flattering part of who that person is. A few years ago, I went hunting with a guy in western Nebraska, and, like, every guy he talked about was Chopper or Mad Dog or something like that. And, and you know that no parent on God's green earth, is like, I will name my child Mad Dog. You know that. Like, those parents, that child was born, and they labored over what his name would be, and they wanted it to be special and have meaning. And then somewhere along the way, a group of friends started calling him Rump or or Stinky, and it just stuck, and that was his name the rest of his life. What is in a nickname? As we read the Gospels, we know that Jesus and the Gospel writers give nicknames. Jesus meets this guy named Simon. He goes, yeah, I'm going to call you Peter. We hear of Thomas the twin, and then probably the best nickname is Judas. No, not that Judas, the other Judas that we see. But Jesus gives us nicknames. And these nicknames are pretty deliberate. And we go to Matthew 5, we see a couple of the nicknames Jesus gives his followers. He says, starting in verse 13 in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how can it, the salt in this be restored? It's no longer good for anything except thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And everyone's like, thanks for that name, Jesus. And then he says, you're the light of the world. <laughs> Excuse me. A city set on a hill can, cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light 
light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that your good works may be seen so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives us these names, salt and light. And these, light, the, these names, I want to see, have, have two very, uh, very practical implications. One, it's, it's their individual nicknames, and two, it is a collective nickname. No one ever puts... Unless they're like under strict guidance from a cardiologist, no one ever puts one grain of salt on their, on their vegetables to make them palatable. No one, no one ever uses, you, you shake it out. You want a lot of salt. And salt, you have the individual grains and you have the collective group of salt. And similar to light, we have a, a, an individual and a collective application of this light. You have, you have the light that lights up the room of the house, and you have the city on the hill, which is a whole bunch of lights broadcasting out into the darkness. There is refuge here. There is safety here. There is sustenance here. Come, all you who are traveling into the night, into our city where you can find those things. And we, as the people of God, are called to be this salt and this light that is distinct and has a distinction that is felt both through the individual people of God and the collective people of God. Do you see both uses of the word people there? That we as individuals and we as a gathered group of believers would be distinct for the Lord, enhancing what God has made and broadcasting hope into the darkness. This, these nicknames, salt and light, do start with this warning. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can that be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. That salt, when it becomes polluted or diluted, can lose its saltiness. And we have warnings about this pollution and dilution all through Scripture, especially in the New Testament, not to revert back to the worldliness that we've been saved out of, but to get rid of it, to put off the old self and put on the new self, to set our minds and eyes and hearts on the things of heaven and not on the things of earth. There are a lot of forces and influences that threaten to either dilute our saltiness or shroud our light. And how we handle those pressures and influences that would seek to rob us or to minimize the work of Christ, that's, that's the question. What do we do with this? How do we do this? And I want to argue today that, first of all, it's a, it's a battle we don't do alone, that none of us is able to fight that battle on our own. None of us are so strong. And we need each other. We need to be together. And we're going to be turning to 1 Peter uh, 1. I invite you to turn there now. I think Peter, who writes his epistle to the elect exiles, to Christians 
who are not where they ought to be, to, let me put it this way, to citizens of heaven who are still on earth trying to find their way of walking with God. And he writes this whole epistle. And he has some pretty profound words on how we can stay salty servants of the Lord. Being and remaining salty servants of the Lord who broadcast light requires both individual and communal effort. And that effort is, first of all, to maintain an undiluted hope. We're going to focus in this section just on verse 13, but if you would, please follow along as I read the whole paragraph. So we read this paragraph, see what Peter is talking about, and then we'll work through it. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, According to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your hope, so that your faith and hope are in God. Being and remaining salty servants of the Lord who broadcast light requires both individual and communal effort to maintain undiluted hope. As good Bible readers, we notice the first word here is therefore, and we always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, in this case, Peter has just come on, come off of, of a real high point early in his epistle, talking about the greatness of our salvation, that we are longing to see Jesus with our own eyes, to have our faith fulfilled, and talks about Jesus being revealed in Scripture, and the Old Testament writers, knowing and perceiving that they were writing about the Spirit of Christ, realizing they weren't writing about the Spirit of the Christ for, for their day and age, but for future readers of what they were writing, future readers of their prophecies and poems and historical accounts, and, and longing for that, and then also saying not only that, but the angels of heaven longing to look into the gospel, longing to look into the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. The angels who are in the throne room of God, who have beheld the very throne that God sits on, long to look into this great salvation made possible for us through Christ Jesus. So get your minds ready for action. Tighten up the laces, get warmed up, button the chin strap, 
because you're living in a day and age that wants to do everything possible to distract you and deter you from that great salvation in Christ. So be ready and think clearly. So ready for action, thinking clearly, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Set your hope fully. I want you to think for a moment. Like all the, all the craziness around you. And this can be like in a micro way or a macro way. Like what are these things that stress you out, that burden you, that you, maybe it's you turn on the news and you're like, that's still going on. Maybe you have stuff from your past or your present or your future that are weighing you down, family, life, nation, the world, whatever. And as you think about these things, you think about possible solutions, and maybe as you're thinking of solutions, obstacles to those solutions keep rising up. This is the kind of uplifting moment in the sermon you guys were hoping for, right? <laughs> now, because Thursday is Thanksgiving, I want you to imagine a pie chart which I think we can agree is the best of all charts. <laughs> and this pie chart is your hope. Your hope for these things. Your hope in the midst of all the pressures. In the midst of all the things that weigh on you. This pie chart is your hope. How many slices of pie are there in your chart? How many colors are there? How big is each slice? Now you may be thinking like, look, Chuck, I know the answer. Like it's, it's all one gigantic pie. It's my dream as an adolescent. I get the whole pie. It's all Jesus. I get it. But really, what, what are the other slices? Is your hope fully set in the coming grace of Jesus of this future in heaven? Is that, is that really your fully hope? Or is there a slice in that pie that just says escape? My hope is an escape from the pain I'm feeling. And maybe that escape is a, a moment, momentary thing, like I just need to disappear into a work of fiction. I need to disappear into a rabbit hole of social media. I need to disappear into a bottle. I need to disappear to white sandy beaches. My hope is escape. Maybe your hope is your work, that when other people see how great you're doing, you'll get the accolades you deserve. What's the light at the end of the tunnel for you? Peter tells us, like, look, there's only one light, and you're best off to keep it only one light, and it is the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's definitely a future grace here that Peter has been talking about in his epistle, but there's also absolutely a present everyday grace. 
Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Your mercies are new every morning. There's the grace that God gives us through the ability to walk through our trials, not alone, not only with him, but with other believers. That we could have brothers and sisters in Christ that would come around us. There's the grace of forgiveness as we daily need to repent. Set your hope fully. Any other slice of that pie is going to come up completely empty eventually. It's just going to, it's not going to be a recurring thing. And an undiluted hope will lead to an undiluted saltiness and an unshrouded light. A saltiness and light that is fully set on the grace of God, the the powerful, majestic name of Christ. Because we don't have an above average salvation. We don't have a slightly more than adequate salvation. We have a great salvation. So how, how dare we put any other slices in that pie chart of hope to stay salty cast light we have this undiluted hope and we need to conform to holiness Paul starts out here we or Peter Peter starts out here he gives us another nickname obedient children some of you are like well Peter didn't know me very well certainly didn't know this kid in my you know just kidding don't go there Peter is not under the assumption that these believers have ceased sinning. And sometimes we can read this and th- see obedient child and be like, well, that's not me. Like, I, I, I identify much more with the Ephesians 2 nickname, sons of disobedience. That's me. But here, it's, it's children of obedience. And Peter doesn't think they're fully sanctified without sin. But he knows God saved them. He knows God adopted them to walk with him and walk according to his will and desire and character. And Peter knows it's their desire to walk fully with the Lord. So he's addressing them, not as they currently are, but how the Lord sees them. He's addressing them not according to their struggle, but according to the sanctifying work of the Lord that is present within their hearts. He's addressing them according to their desire for godliness. He's saying, as children of God, walking in the will and desire of their heavenly Father, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also ought to be holy in all your conduct. This is the biggest problem. The passions of their former ignorance In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war on your soul. That these things, these, these worldly ways of thinking and solving problems are not just another viable option. These things that gratify the flesh, that puff us up with pride, like we have some secret knowledge that, that keep us pushing after the lusts of our hearts, taking us outside the bounds of what God has called holy. 
these things wage war on our souls. Now, every now and then, I, I share bits of my personal testimony while preaching. So those of you who have been here a while and tracked, you know I got saved somewhere around my uh, middle uh, single digits. Uh, my parents got saved in their middle 20s, but I got saved in my middle single digits. And so my dad, who got saved in his mid to late 20s, in the 70s, and I, who got saved after a rough life in the church nursery, <laughs> this passage applies to both of us. Now, it's not that my former ignorance is all about, like, I didn't get enough animal crackers, although that still lies within me. <laughs> and my, my dad's sin struggles are different because he got saved at a later age in life. Here, here's what it is. No matter who you are, you were not born a child of God. You were born a child of person. You needed or still need to be born again, not of blood and water, but of the Spirit. And you become a child of God. And no matter what age at which you become born again, there is still a fleshly heart inside of you. So that even if you're like me, where you got saved in the middle single digits, instead of the middle 20s or middle 30s or middle 50s or whatever, that heart of flesh, that former ignorance of I can live my life the way I want to, of I should do what is right in my eyes, that's still a problem and it's still at work within us. And what Peter is saying, he goes, don't be conformed to that. Now, here's the crazy thing. That's who we all, as believers, used to be completely, right? That's exactly who we used to be. But now, in Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. So now to go back to that would be conforming to something I am not. And that's a beautiful picture of the miracle of salvation. That now, as a Christian, for me to do the things I used to be would be conforming to something I am not. It would be to become different than who the Lord has made me. And so Peter's saying, don't be conformed to that. But start taking after your daddy. Start taking after your heavenly father. Be holy as he is holy. In Ephesians, Paul tells us, look, don't be, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit of God has the same influence on you as, as wine would on an alcoholic, someone who's had too much. And here, it's don't be conformed to what you used to be but aren't any longer. But let the holiness of God be the primary and only trendsetter in your heart. That I'm walking in this way over and over again. And when I sin, it's my flesh trying to go back to what I no longer am. And when I walk in bitterness, when I walk in anger, when I walk in addiction, it's my flesh saying, come on back. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of the holy God of heaven. I've been transformed. 
I need to walk in his holiness, not according to my former ignorance, my, my former way of doing things. And this is where we want to just like rush right after sin management stuff, right? Let's get in an accountability group. Let's get you in a Bible study group. Let's get you in a prayer group so those people can pray for your wicked, awful heart that won't stop sinning. Here's the deal. Accountability groups, awesome. Bible study groups, I'm a big fan. Prayer groups, phenomenal. As long, they're great, they're good. But when they're at their best is when everyone in that room is continually pointed to the fullness of the hope and the joy that we can have in Christ. And it's not about quit doing that wicked, awful thing, but it's about, is your hope fully on the Lord? Because your life is showing a lot of hope on the flesh right now. Let's set the hope fully on the Lord. We conform to the holiness. To be Christ-like is holy, distinct. It's salty and bright. Maybe there's some things now that you need to confess where you've been hoping a little more in that former ignorance of your flesh than you have been in Christ himself and what he has secured. We, have, we conform to holiness and we, we do so relying on the irrevocable ransom. Verse 17, and if you call on him who is father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's a tension here that Peter very well puts to words, that we are citizens of heaven still on earth, we are children of obedience while living disobedience at times. We are members of a holy priesthood with old desires that are still pretty strong. With all that in mind, we are walking with the holy judge of all who does not play favorites and is completely impartial. One commentator named Mount says, to fear God is not to cower before a capricious potentate, but to stand with reverential awe in the presence of the creator and redeemer of mankind. It is not to hide behind someone hoping that I don't get beheaded. But to say, the one on the throne created everything, and he created me in his likeness, I have rebelled, and he has redeemed me through the blood of his son. Oh. Wow. And with that reverence in mind, Peter points us again to the great salvation. Because the judge also paid the ransom. 
and he ransomed us, not, there's a lot of times we look at ransom, we're like, oh, well, God ransomed us from the eternal penalty of hell. He ransomed us from his own wrath. He delivered us from his wrath. He, he poured that out on Christ instead. But here, look what he ransomed us from. From the futile ways <coughs> inherited from your forefathers. He ransomed you from the very things, the very worthless things that bring about his wrath. He ransomed us from our sin. Let's look at the greatness of salvation here. Let's dig into this, this word of ransom. That we were held in deathly captivity, causing great harm to ourselves. We were helpless to get out of this situation ourselves. The price on our heads was too high for us to pay. We had no ability to pay it. And it was paid. And it was paid by Christ. And not only was it paid, but it was paid pretty powerfully. You see, Peter's pretty careful to point out the currency by which it was paid. Not with these perishable things such as silver or gold. Let's say, let's say I go out to eat and I like being a, a good tipper. You know, at least 2%. Just kidding. <laughs> and I go to tip in cash. And I open my wallet, and it, 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 it's like gone with the wind in my wallet, just all this paper pouring out. And I pull out some money that you're like, oh, I've never seen that before. And it all has Saddam Hussein's face on it. I'm like, here's the tip. Look at all this cash. You know what that cash is worth? Nothing. Let's say I pull out some really old bills, so old they're from the Confederacy, and I try to tip with that. You know what it's worth? Nothing. It's worth nothing. That currency doesn't matter. Now let's say I, I go and I pull out instead really colorful money, and it's modern money from Nepal, and I try to pay for my gas with that at come and go. You know what they're going to do? They're going to wait for me to actually pay, because that currency doesn't work here. And what, what Peter's saying, he's like, look, our, our ransom was paid with a currency. And, it, and it's a currency that's not worthless. And it's a currency that's not in the wrong location. And it's also a currency that doesn't have a fluctuating value like gold and silver. But it is paid for not with something that could be outdated, not with something that's in the wrong location, not with something that has a fluctuating value, but your ransom was paid by the very precious blood of the Son of God. It's irrevocable. There's, there's no way that the one who, who held the bill for your ransom, the one who held you captive, could say, well, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the current rates of inflation and the devaluation of uh, this, this particular... They can't say that! Because it's the blood of Christ. And so we go back to the Bible studies and the accountability groups and the prayer groups. They're good. But when they're really great is when they keep pointing us time and time again to the precious hope we have in Christ. The, 
we maintain an undiluted hope. That we conform to holiness and rely on this irrevocable ransom and place our utmost confidence in Christ. Peter, as though he hasn't said enough about Jesus already, he goes, he goes in, he goes, he, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He started out having this hope fully set. And he ends with his hope exclusively in God. He's writing to these elect exiles. He's writing to us about conducting ourselves amid the pressures that can pollute and dilute. And he brackets this section with hope in the Lord and hope in the Lord. And in the middle about conforming to the holiness and this irrevocable ransom. He talks about our great Christ right here at the end to bring us back to the hope. And he doesn't go back to Bethlehem. He goes back to the pre-existence of Christ. That before the earth had a core or a crust or water or light shining on it or any of it, that Christ... was foreknown by the Father. He was with God. And his salvation that he would give was, was foreknown. The ransom was foreknown. But Christ has been made manifest. He came to earth here in these last times, Peter's saying, he's like, look, not too long ago, a few decades back, Jesus came. And you know why he did it? He did it for you. He did it for your sake. He did it because he loves you. And through him, the way, the truth, and the life, we become believers in God. The very God who raised Jesus out of the grave and gave him glory, gave him the name that is above every name to make sure that our hope is in God. This present grace is not new. Nor is it going anywhere, and nor is it running out. And this present grace will carry us to future glory. We have one Savior, one salvation. And yet we have a thousand or more influences that would conspire against us. Conspire against the singularity of hope that we need to have and the saltiness we need to have. When we mix our hope in Christ when we start dividing that pie chart, oh, my hope is in that next getaway. My hope is in next November that the right guy, the right man or woman will get elected. That's my hope. That's a portion of my hope. 
my hope is in this next job, my hope is in this next promotion, my hope is in being viewed as valuable, my hope is finding someone who will take those chains of loneliness off of me. When we start dividing our hope, we start conforming to that, those former things, to those earthly passions. When, however, we keep the hope of Christ not only first, not only foremost, but singular, without competition, unwavering, <coughs> then our saltiness as servants is unmistakable. And our light becomes clear. We gather to be distinct. And our distinction comes through a magnification of the glory and grace of Christ. When the church is gathered together, holding to this hope together, living out the holiness of God, it, it forms a light that shines like this city on a hill for miles. But it's not a city with a power grid. Just got to tell you, we in the office, we've seen some stuff being next to this power station. It doesn't always work. Sometimes the lights go out. But the city, full of people of God, who have set their hope unwaveringly and without competition on the grace of Christ, on the glory of Christ that is to come. That city, that light doesn't stop. Our world is full of darkness, and the light of Christ outlasts the darkness of the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us. Lord, we thank you that you're not a God of heaping shame, but you're a God of heaping grace and mercy. And so, Lord, as we are struggling to have our hope fully set on you, we pray that you would help us, that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, that you would supply us with other people who would help us in this. And that we together would walk with a singular hope in Christ. And that the fruit of that would be very salty and very bright. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.